This is 105.9 The Region, where parents talk and explore practical, proactive, and evidence-based solutions. This is Where Parents Talk with Leanne Castellino. Thank you for joining us on Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Leanne Castellino. Each week, we tackle topics of relevance to parents, especially those raising teens, youth, and young adults. We hope to provide you with food for thought in your parenting journey by sharing scientific findings, evidence-based research, and the lived experience of our invited guests, who are all parents themselves. The lived experience of our guests today garnered national headlines in the late 1990s and again today, 20-plus years later. Her story is one of crisis, courage, conviction, and a commitment to affect change. As a teenager on Canada's national ski team in the 1990s, she was on pace for athletic glory. An eight-time Canadian champion and medalist at multiple world championships and World Cup events, the native of Nanaimo, B.C., would go on to participate in the 2002 Olympics in Salt Lake City, the first of her two Olympic appearances. Few people knew that for much of that entire time, she was being psychologically, physically, and sexually abused by her former coach. In 2017, that perpetrator, Bertrand Charret, was convicted of 37 charges and sentenced to 12 years in prison for his actions against nine girls, among them several members of Canada's national junior ski team. He was granted full parole in 2020. As a sexual abuse victim and survivor, Alison Forsyth has taken a decades-long trauma and is turning it into a force for change. She is a partner at ITP Sport, which stands for Independent Third Party, based in Ottawa and is a mother of three. She joins us today from her home in Oakville, Ontario. Alison, thank you for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me and, and, and thank you for that great introduction. Why do you believe it's important for parents to hear and understand your story all these years later and especially today? Yes, thank you for asking that. Um, I mean, I, I would like to say it's probably pretty obvious why parents should really know what happens in the sports world. Or I think I think we could also imagine that this could cross into different places that your children are. So we want to maintain that relative conversation. Um, and I think it's 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 the reality is that it is complicated and com complex. And I am a parent of three, three lovely little athletes as well. And I know firsthand from my experience with sexual abuse in the sports system as an athlete and also now as a parent, the the pressure I feel that parents feel to just I'm going to use this in more a, a, a not a literal sense, but a figurative sense. Just hand your child over to other adults that you are, you know, maybe it's told or you start to feel that they just know what is best for your child. So whether that's an art club or um, or a ski club or a hockey rink, you know, we're as parents, we're put into this position of surrendering some some sort of control to a system of sport. And, and in that, we need to be very mindful that there is incredible, you know, sport is an incredible place to raise children. I will always believe that, but we need to be smart and we need to be educated. We need to be clear on what that organization is doing to protect our children. And we also need to be clear on what we can be looking for as parents to help protect the children. On that note, one of the things we want to focus on in this interview is the whole idea about safe reporting. 
So tell us about when you first decided to report the abuse that you were suffering as a teenage athlete and what was done about it. Yes. Yeah, so I um, I was what you would consider the whistleblower in our case um, at that particular time. It's interesting. We it's also interesting to think about this in a larger sport capacity. We had a very male dominated um, team of coaches and people of authority. So it wasn't until a female physical therapist showed up on the on the road with us. Um, we were in Europe where I just broke down and I couldn't take it anymore. And on the massage table, I I just shared everything with her. At that time, um, she mentioned to me that just the day before another girl had come and told her the same thing. So it happened very, very quickly. Um, and the head of the organization came over to Europe. Um, but what also happened very, very quickly, quickly is the message that started to be relayed to myself and to others was that if we were to pursue something in this regard, um, then we would lose our sponsorships. And that was quite literally what was told to me. So I was silenced very clearly. I was actually in a room with my sexual abuser and the head of the national team at the time, both of which were, you know, in my opinion now, sort of working together, unfortunately, and kind of disgustingly, to be honest, um, to keep this quiet for fear of reprisal from sponsors, um, for fear of losing a, a team. And that's what was told to me is that we just can't say anything. Um, it was our understanding after that he had, you know, that he had had his coaching license taken away. What we subsequently found out years later when he was finally arrested was his coaching license was never taken away. He was allowed to resign. There was no investigation. And why organizations do this is so that they can obviously keep it quiet and have no paper trail that something has occurred within their organization. So he was able to just go on and live his life for all those years um, with zero, you know, zero punishment for what he had done to multiple, multiple victims um, until he was he he resurfaced coaching young athletes again. And as terrifying as that is, um, he resurfaced and one of his victims actually saw him coaching. She was also a coach and she marched into the RCMP office in Mont Tremblant, Quebec in the dispatch there. And within 24 hours, he was arrested. So it just goes to show that it's quite easy, unfortunately, for organizations to cover these things up. And we've seen a lot of this in the news lately. And we just didn't know. We assumed that he had had some sort of reprimand or punishment. Obviously, it should have been far more extreme than anything that was would have been handed out to him back then anyway. But it was just, you know, it was it was challenging. And the last thing I'll say about this is athletes don't report. And I'll use that as like a blanket statement. If you were to ask why, Alvin, why are athletes fearful to report abuse? There's a few main reasons. One is they don't trust the organization um, because of cover ups that they've heard of in the past. Two is they fear reprisal. They fear retribution. They fear that, you know, their their career will be at jeopardy, their their trajectory to the NHL, their trajectory to getting to the Olympics and gymnastics, whatever that may be. There's a fear. You sort of weigh the you weigh the pros and the cons, as crazy as that sounds. Um, and then the third reason, which I had a lot of, is ostracization from the rest of the team. So in that, you know, when you're the whistleblower and you're the person that's willing to stand up and say something really wrong is happening here, unfortunately, human nature of other people want to look for, you know, why would we have to rock the boat? Why can't we just maintain status quo? So athletes or anyone that is thinking about reporting abuse or maltreatment, it's very challenging, not to mention you have to admit, you know, you have to have that courage to walk into a room and say, I've been sexually abused. That in itself is, you know, a very courageous thing to do. So on that note, what does safe reporting look like to you? 
Yeah. So my company actually um, specializes in safe reporting proudly. And that's it's probably obvious to you, to everyone listening. That's why I got into this work was my own firsthand experience. Um, so what safe resport- reporting looks like, and this is something every parent should be mindful of with their organizations, um, the clubs. And I would highly anticipate that not many have this in place, just to be honest, it's coming, the work is coming. Um, but basically what it means is if, um, if an athlete a, you know, I'm using athletes because I'm an athlete, but you can understand I'm speaking about any child or or a parent or anyone that has either witnessed or experienced maltreatment. And I'd like to highlight that in a second. Um, they have a, a phone number and an email to go to that's not the organization. If the organization gets the phone call or the email, they need to hand it immediately over to the third party agency. So what we do or what happens in the safe re- reporting circumstance is we intake the complaint. At that point, it's called a complaint. We triage it, which we, you know, obviously if it's, if it's a minor, it immediately gets child services is called the RCMP or the police um, in that jurisdiction are called. But otherwise, we keep it completely outside of the organization. We work with the complainant. We work with what we call the respondent, which is the person whose the complaint has been laid against. Um, we look at all the policies and we we trigger what's called a third party investigation. So there's two two things that need to be completely independent. One is what we do, which is managing the cases and taking the complaints in around maltreatment. And the second thing is an independent investigation as to what has actually occurred. Um, and a lot of people, you know, you hear in the news now with the NHL as an example, they talk about the third party investigation, but the, the critical piece that's missing is that athletes should never, or parents or anyone that has witnessed or experienced abuse should not have to actually tell the organization. They are inherently biased, whether good or bad. You are listening to Where Parents Talk here on 105.9 The Region, and we are in conversation with Alison Forsyth, former Canadian Olympic skier, partner at Independent Third Party Sport, and mother of three. We're talking about safe reporting and safe sport. Now, one of the challenging pieces, and as you've alluded to, it is so complex for so many reasons, but the whole notion of abusive behavior often being normalized. So you've got a coach who's hard-nosed and he's known for, you know, he or her being that way. They're often celebrated for their tough style. So how does a, a young athlete and their parent and family, for that matter, where do they differentiate? How do you draw the line between knowing, is this maltreatment? Should, you know, is this disrespectful or should I accept this? Such a great question. And my response is it can be complicated and I respect that. So what what the term that we use is cultural conditioning. And the way that I would explain it to parents is, well, first and foremost, um, your I, I always want everyone to understand that your brain will lie to you. And by that, I mean, it'll find reasons to think, well, I didn't see what I thought. I don't want to hurt someone. I maybe I'm wrong. And you start to question yourself, your instinct and your instincts, especially as a parent and just your intuition is what you need to listen to. When you when you see something, you hear something. You just feel it is wrong. It's it's that age old expression where there's smoke, there's fire. So that's the first thing. Just trust your gut. Um, what I also want to say, though, is that when it comes to coaching, we were all conditioned also. So as if we were athletes growing up, especially generationally, you know, I'm 43 years old. When I was a child growing up in my sport, it was very common for a coach to yell at me. It was also very common for coaches that male coaches that were only eight to 10 years older than me to be taking me on trips. So we have evolved as a sport culture, but what I want us everyone to understand is the best way that I can explain how you would look at this is to think about what is and what is not permitted in our school system. 
So sport is the only sector in society that doesn't have a mandated, legislatively mandated safeguarding of children, which is absolutely asinine, as we all know. And that's what we're here to change. So if you look at how your child would be treated in school, you need to ask yourself if, 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 a, if a teacher is not allowed to stand on a desk and scream and, and, and spit in the face of a child and demean them um, around their math homework, then why is that for some reason still in some places considered culturally appropriate in sport? So there's a difference between assertive coaching and abusive coaching. And another way I would put that would be the difference between demanding coaching and demeaning coaching. So what you want to look for, just so I'm crystal clear, is you want to think about, is this coach coaching my child from the perspective of a skill that they need to improve? And are they using positive reinforcement? Are they saying to my child, great job out there. And here's what I saw that you can improve upon. What do you think of that? And obviously, sometimes it can be more assertive than that. And it could look like, hey, what happened out there? You were supposed to move the puck behind the net and you took it all the way to the end what happened you know that that is i don't that is not abusive as far as we as far as the code of conducts that we work with that would not be an abusive style of coaching however if you were to name call children if you're attacking them as people as little humans and you're screaming and yelling or you're obviously physical abuse is more obvious um but you need to be just mindful of that where you just feel like this coach is attacking my child in a way that's not skill-based and it's not assertive, and it's not positive reinforcement. Time for a short break here on 105.9 The Region. We will continue our conversation about safe reporting and safe sport with retired Canadian Olympian Allison Forsyth when we come back. Stay with us. Want to learn more about the show? Email info at whereparentstalk.com. Stick around. Leanne Castellino and Where Parents Talk will be right back on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to Where Parents Talk. Listen live at 1059theregion.com. Here's Leanne Castellino. Welcome back. Several university campuses, the USA Gymnastics Team, and most recently the National Hockey League are among the more high-profile cases. Each has been embroiled in sexual harassment, assault, or abuse allegations and the ugly aftermath how the reporting of abusive behavior is managed inside an organization is among the areas increasingly under scrutiny. It is in large part the reason our guest today sought to use her experience as a victim and survivor of sexual assault to spearhead meaningful change. Retired Canadian Olympic skier and mother of three, Alison Forsyth is our guest. Allison, I want to pick up on a point that you made earlier, which I think is really important in trying to understand this story. And that would be the mindset of a victim. You know, a lot of us reading these stories think, well, why didn't she do this? And why didn't he do that? And there were all these signs. And it's very easy to armchair quarterback these stories. But take us through what is going on or what went on for you uh, while this was happening and before you reported of course, and such a very important piece of information. So what, um, and I, you know, I do, I, I, whether I'm stereotyping or generalizing, I do believe that what happened to me would stand very true for most athletes. It's what I call the mindset of an athlete. So what you have is somebody who, an athlete who will naturally look up to the coach, naturally will want to be favored by that coach, um, which is important to remember, um, and also naturally have, um, you know, an, an 
an intuitive, I want to do whatever it takes to make it. So that was what the situation was in my case, where um, it was what this person did, the perpetrator did, was he would find a way to make us. And the only way I can explain is like jockey us off each other. So he would favor one girl one day that was paying more attention to him. And then the next day he'd be off of her and run to another girl. And we wanted to be in his favor. So that's the first thing is athletes have a mindset where they want to win. They want to sometimes feel like they want to win at all costs. They look at that person of authority, in most cases a coach, and they say to themselves, this person is going to be the person that gets me there. So I need to do whatever this person wants me to do. That is sad, but that is very true. And that is very much a very blanketed experience of most athletes, especially those in high performance that are trying to make the NHL or the Olympics or whatever. Um, so in that case, as you can imagine, it is on. it should be on the coach or the person of authority to absolutely shut down any sort of, you know, over attention or anything to do with that. So favoritism is, is a big thing that athletes want. And it's a big, even bigger thing that a potential abuser will take advantage of. Um, the other thing, which is fascinating and something I learned you know, way too late, obviously, is a term called grooming the gatekeeper. And I think that's incredibly important for parents to think about and be mindful of. The only way that I can explain it in, in terms that I think people understand is I call it the Ted Bundy effect. So Ted Bundy was a man, as we all know, who was, who was a, white, a white male in his late 20s who was charismatic, very attractive, was you know, in law school, was going to be a lawyer. Nobody could imagine that this was a serial killer. So he likely got away with killing many, many more women than he would have had we not had that bias of, well, this person couldn't possibly do that. So what these men or women do is they find a way to get everyone on their side. So clearly, parents, I'm talking to you now, you need to watch out if you have a coach or anyone in your child's life that is overly communicating with you, saying things to you like, your child's got it. They just need to stick with me. I'm going to start taking them for extra practices. Um, so they groom the gatekeepers. They find a way to get every adult around this victim on their side in a very charismatic way. So what you who you think you're looking for, you actually need to be thinking about looking for the exact opposite. It's going to be the person that you least expect that comes up time and time again. It's a bias that we have, that we have an expectation that a, a sexual abuser has a certain look. Movies have told us that it's an acute experience that happens in the woods with a cloak or whatever that is. We're conditioned to think that it happens a certain way. Um, it's very complex, very complicated, and you need to watch out for that you as a parent will also be groomed by this person. Well, and, you know, on that note, it gets increasingly more complicated as your children get older into, you know, teens and, and youth and, and they're going off to sporting events on their own and practices and things like that. And parents aren't in locker rooms and change rooms. And so what kind of advice could you give to parents of that age group in terms of the hallmarks of abusive behavior that they should be aware of to protect their child? Absolutely. And I want to start with one thing, which is the world is ready for this. And I say that with all the love and attention to parents everywhere. There was a time when we should probably didn't feel comfortable, felt like we might be that parent that, you know, no one liked because we were the ones that were overly asking the questions. You know, how are you keeping my child safe? You know, there's there's you want to kind of stay in that group think mentality when you're on teams. That is over. So there's two critical things that parents need to do. One is you need to ask your organization what do you do to keep my child safe? Nobody questions whether or not our children need to step onto the ice wearing a helmet. 
because that keeps them safe physically. So why have we not in the past asked the organization what they're doing to keep our child safe from emotional, physical and sexual abuse? Unfortunately, it is an epidemic in this country is one in three women, one in six men that this happens to. So it's on us to get critically assertive with our organizations and make sure that they have the right things in place. Now, it background check is not enough. They need to have proper programming. They need to have open and observable spaces. By that, I mean, it's often called the rule of two. An adult of authority should never be alone with a child ever, ever. Your coaches should not be driving your, your child around, whether they are the best people you've ever met or the worst. We all have to do our due diligence to protect all the children. So it's not about you and your child all the time. One example I'll give, and I get this from my friends, my dear friends who know this is the work I'm in. We as parents are also biased. We think from our point of view and we think from our life. So what I want you to know is that it's not the reason why you, as an adult, you cannot be in a girl's dressing room and as an example, help a girl as their parent do up their skates. It's not about you. It's about who is that person standing next to you and what is that person's intention with the children in the room? So we need to step out of, but I'm a good person and I only work with good people and I would never do this and step into, okay, we all need to do our part. So that's the first thing. You've got to find out what the organization's doing. You need to push on them. I work with organizations every day and they say, I want you to do an awareness session with, a, with parents. And I say, great. First thing I'm going to say to parents is go back to you guys and find out what you're doing to keep their children safe. And so then they look at me and they're like, okay, can you help us with that too? Right. So then there's the personal responsibility piece. And I'll, um, I don't know if this is where we're going to talk about it in a second, but I'll just say it out loud now because it's very clear and very simple. You need to watch for critical steps that are taken when a child to look for favoritism first. That is step number one. The predator preys on the weakest link in the team. It's often not the athlete that is the best. It often is the athlete that has a challenging home situation and they see an access point where they can become a quote unquote personal friend. From favoritism, it moves to personal relationship. That's where a coach will start to ask, um, you know, how's it going at home? Like inappropriate questions about that athlete's personal life and create a personal bond, not just a sport-based coaching bond. From there, it goes to isolation. So isolation is when the abuse occurs. In a serial circumstance like mine, it was mental coercion and mental isolation. And in often case and, and physical isolation, you would know, take me on road trips by myself, et cetera. But what often happens is that's when you have to be mindful of what is, you know, why is this coach driving my child around? How, why is this coach, you know, keeping my child away from the other athletes and overly favoritizing? favoring them. And as a parent, it's challenging because as a parent, we want that child to be in the favor of a coach as well. Right. And then there's complicity. Complicity is when an abuser makes the victim feel like they're responsible. This was an incredibly challenging thing for me to work through over the last 20 years that I've been in consistent and constant and powerful therapy around my abuse um, is they will find a way to make it your fault. What happens just so everyone is aware and it's very sad, but it's true, um, is that a coach will buy underage athletes alcohol or drugs. Then that athlete not only is in a, in a, a, a mental state of not really being in a, in in their brain to actually make good decisions. But further, they will easily say to themselves, oh, well, I did something really bad. I drank alcohol. I'm underage. Therefore, this is my fault. Victims always go into self-blame. It's the reason why a woman who was acutely sexually assaulted in an alleyway, which is where our brain goes, at least mine used to, and that's what I thought sexual assault was until this happened to me, 
that woman will blame what she was wearing. She'll blame herself for what she was eating or drinking that caused this. So just know that we as victims go into a lot of self-blame and a lot of self-shame. So to recap, favoritism, personal relationship, isolation, and complicity. The last thing I want to mention is when you're in this, because obviously you know I was, when you are in this, you don't see it. You are under this person's spell. You believe the things that this person is telling you. So why... As parents, we also have to stand up for, I could cry saying this, but we have to stand up for everyone else's children. Mm. We will see it. The victim does not see it. That victim's own parents may not see it because they're in a gatekeeper grooming situation themselves. So it, I get it. It's hard. People don't want to ruin people's lives. They don't want to say, well, I don't know if I saw this. Who am I to judge this person? And maybe I didn't see what I saw. This is human nature, but we have to protect other people's children because we will see what is happening and they won't. So that's why I always say there is such power and responsibility in the witness and the bystander, which is why it is when people report abuse or maltreatment to our company, we are very clear. It's like you can witness it or and or experience it you don't just call us if you've had the problem we will take a call from anyone within that organization that saw anything that they felt was off track and know trust that people like us or organizations that are doing this well will truly take it seriously and that's what you have to hold that flame because that's how we're going to work through it together is to stand up if you see it you have to say it that's the only way i can explain it if it's happening, you say it, see it, you say it. So just know that it's going to be on all of us together. And it's time. We need to do this. The amount of times that this car has started and stalled out for me over the last four years is staggering. So why I do what I do now and I'm on every media outlet that will possibly have me is because it's going to be on all of us to take the courage and the confidence to keep the gas pedal pushed down so that we could truly change the sports system. So many tremendously important points in, in what you just said, Allison. Now, I'm curious. Uh, you mentioned your three children, uh, who are all 10 and under, uh, being athletes themselves. Given the perspective that you have and the experience that you've, you've had, how do you approach this topic with them, both from, you know, what's age appropriate in terms of what they need to know about it, and also with whatever uh, sport that they're playing? Great, great question. So I've done some media lately, you know, Hockey Night in Canada. I had a lot of parents come up to me the next day. I am a team manager and a trainer of my kids' hockey teams. I live and breathe sport every day with my children. And they, they just said to me, that was amazing, Allison. And how do I talk to my children about it? I will be honest that there's not a lot of resources out there. I am currently, and I'm happy to share with you, Leanne, for your community. I'm currently creating a conversation guide for parents around what we call safe sport. Um, but in the meantime, I what I do with my children, they obviously know about my circumstance. I'm quite open. I don't hide anything from my children, regardless of their age. However, I speak to them about it in an age appropriate way. What supports my conversations and I offer for you is to find out what is happening in your child's school around this topic. That's the other thing. Don't don't get too comfortable. And I wish I could say you could, but don't get too comfortable that your school is also doing incredible due diligence around this topic. It's terrifying to me that we don't train children. We educate adults on this. We quote unquote, make them do it, but we don't give the children the empowerment tools to self-advocate. So as much as this is going to be challenging for parents, just have the real conversation. You need to be a trusted, safe space for your child. And I believe the only way you can be that for them is to let them know that no matter what happens, no matter what happens, you will never judge. You are there to listen. 
You will not get mad at the coach. You will just be there to listen and to support them. Incredibly important information. Allison Forsyth, partner at Independent Third Party Sport. Thank you so much for sharing your story and your time with us today. You're welcome. Remember, you can download the Where Parents Talk podcast wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Leanne Castellino. See you next time. Sign up for Leanne's parenting newsletter and so much more at whereparentstalk.com. This is Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region.